For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Hebrews 5. So, so far we've been working through the book and we've been looking at these are Jewish background Christians who are under pressure from their culture, from their families, from their synagogues to give up on this whole idea of Jesus being the Messiah and go back to traditional Judaism. In chapters 1 and 2, we saw that the author was really focusing on the idea of the supremacy of Christ. Just the idea that Jesus is the ultimate form of understanding who God is. That Jesus isn't uh, teaching and existing in contradiction to the Old Testament, but he's actually the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And then we've spent the last couple of weeks talking about this idea of God's rest, how he wants them to persevere through the difficult circumstances, because when you trust God, even when circumstances are difficult, you find peace and you see the fullness of his plan manifested in your life. That the only way to to not see God's plan is to say no to God. And so that even when things are hard, you stay and you persevere and you're faithful and you see how God can use even terrible circumstances to bring great things about in your life. Now we're kind of moving into a new section of Hebrews where this whole uh, section from chapters 5 through 10 are really about this idea of the supremacy of the new covenant itself. That God had a plan in the Old Testament but that plan was always intended to be temporary. That he, even in the, in the uh, passages of the Old Testament, spoke of making a new covenant and establishing a new connection at a deeper intimacy with all who would respond to God's gift. And that this section of Hebrews is really starting to get into explaining how the new covenant is the fulfillment of the old covenant And how God's plan is to draw us closer to himself. So we ended our teaching last week in Hebrews 4. And we read this at the end of the teaching last week. It said, And 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So this picture that, that he was talking about in chapter 4 is that we, God wants us to have confidence. He wants us to draw near. This idea of drawing near to the throne of grace to an old covenant thinker, someone who had been raised in the Jewish traditions, Boldly drawing near to the throne of God was a very scary proposition because there had to be someone between you and God. They, they understood that God had ordained for them that they needed an intermediary, that you couldn't just approach God on your own because of our sinfulness and our brokenness. And that was the high priest. And so this is kind of lost on us as 21st century Americans. You know, what is a high priest? We have images in our heads of what this might mean. But it's important to understand the elements of the old covenant priesthood. You'll remember when we did our Hebrews overview at the very beginning of this series, we had this timeline. And the priesthood really begins after the Egyptian period of 400 years of slavery 
and it has to do with the descendants of Jacob as they were spread out into and, and categorized into the 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. And each tribe was given a portion of land, and some of the tribes were given specific roles. We look in Genesis 49.10, and we see the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Judah was one of the sons. And it says that Judah is going to provide the tribe of Judah, the descendants of Judah, are going to be the kings of Israel. So the scepter shall not depart, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So as we think about the way that Jewish culture and society was structured, all kings need to be from the tribe of Judah. We go to Numbers 3, 6 through 8, and we read, he says, bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest that they may serve him. They shall perform the duties for him and the whole congregation before the tent of meeting to do the service of the tabernacle. They shall also keep all the furnishings of the tent of meeting along with the duties of the sons of Israel to do the service of the tabernacle. So the descendants of Levi would be the priests, the guys who would keep the work and keep the tabernacle up and running and uh, work with the sacrificial system and the whole ceremonial law that God had laid out for the people of Israel. That's why when you get to the Bible and you read Leviticus, you're like, why is this just a bunch of instructions on how to do the, the sacrificial system? And it's because it's the Levites who were supposed to be the priests who oversaw the ceremony of the Old Covenant. Now, all of this instruction came to them during the time of Moses. God was working and moving and, and had divided out the 12 tribes and had explained these things, but it was recorded and given to Moses. The first five books of the Old Testament were given by God to Moses to share with the people. So the idea of a priest here was someone who would go to God for the people. That there was rich imagery all throughout this sacrificial system. And you'll get more of that when we get to Hebrews chapter 9. We'll talk more about the Old Testament sacrificial system in detail because it's fascinating and points and creates a picture of Jesus needing to go to the cross for all the Jewish people. But for all, all, now, all you really know, need to know is the priests were the guys who were viewed as they were between the people and God. They were the ones who would work with God, who would work with the ceremonies. And the people would go to the priests, the priests would go to God. And this was because it needed to illustrate that our sin had created a separation between us and God. That God is a righteous God and that he must punish evil that we've committed and are guilty of evil. And so if you just stroll up to God without something between you, you could face God's judgment. And so the priests filled that role. So what is a high priest? A high priest was chosen among the priests essentially to be their leader. Each year a high priest would be chosen and they would also represent all of Israel and play a very specific and special role in the temple sacrifice. Now, in the time of Moses, it wasn't a temple, it was a tabernacle, it was a tent, because they were a nomadic people. And the priest would go in each year, and he had to wear very specific garb. And we look at that, and we're like, wow, that is a fancy outfit, isn't it? 
And it has a lot of meaning. It has a lot of purpose. The, the breastplate, you can see, had 12, 12 stones on it. And on each of those stones were scribed the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the symbolism here was the priest bore the tribes, bore the people of Israel on his heart. And then he had stones, one large stone on each shoulder, and on each stone, six of the 12 tribes were inscribed, and it meant that the priest was representative of carrying the people on his shoulders. He bore the weight. He was the representative of the people of Israel. So when he went to go and make sacrifices of sin, he was paying for his own sin, symbolically, but he was also representing the sin of the entire nation in recognition that evil must be punished and an innocent death can only, only an innocent death can take the place of a sinful person. And so this is the imagery that was used here. So we get to Hebrews 5 and we're talking about the high priest and we start in verse 1, it says, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for sins as for the people and so also for himself. So this is the author of Hebrews just explaining better than I just did what is the role of the high priest. He goes on in 4 through 6 and says, And no one takes the honor to himself but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. But also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus, the Messiah, was to play this role and become the permanent high priest, the permanent intermediary between the people of God and God. But the high priest, according to Mosaic law, was a Levite. He carried out the temple sacrifice and represents the people to God. Jesus, he says, is our new and permanent high priest, but Jesus is not a Levite. Jesus is from the tribe of kings, is from the tribe of Judah. So we have a contradiction here, a seeming uh, block in the way that Scripture presents who the Messiah is and who the Messiah can be because the Scriptures tell us that the Messiah will be both priest and king. But all priests descend from Levi, all kings descend from Judah, and it's, also, it's actually built into the system that you couldn't have a priest-king under Mosaic law. This gets further complicated when we look and see that the Bible actually predicts that the Messiah will be both priest and king. Psalm 110, starting in verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Now this is a long recognized what we call messianic psalm. God is talking to God. He is talking to himself. This is the father talking to the son. He says, the Lord will stretch out your scepter from, 
uh, from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power and holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. You will rule and you will be the high priest. But you cannot be from the tribe of Judah and from the tribe of Levi. Because your history, your background is traced according to the lineage of your father. You can't be from two tribes, yet the Messiah will be king and will be priest. And this is where we get into the importance of the internal consistency of Scripture. We talked a little bit last week about rules for interpretation, that if the Bible is really God revealing himself to the human race, and God is perfect, and God does not lie, and God does not change, then if the Bible doesn't fit with itself, either the Bible is flawed or God is flawed, either way we have a problem because how do you figure that out? How do you figure out which parts are flawed and which parts aren't? You're like, well, I'll decide for myself. Thank you very much. And it's like, okay, we can do that, but now the Bible has no authority. We become the authority because we decide which parts we like and which parts we don't like. This would have been especially important to a Hebrew audience who was raised under the importance of understanding Hebraic law. This stuff was not some far-off, distant way of thinking. This was literally the law of their land and the traditions of their people. So you come in and you say, Jesus from the tribe of Judah is the Messiah, and he is both Messiah King and high priest, and they're like, Wah. there's a category error there that can't work. The Messiah could be king, but he can't be both king and priest. The system's set up to actually block that. So the ramifications of this to the audience, put yourself in the, uh, in the shoes of the Hebrew audience. They're sitting there thinking, the teachings of Jesus cannot contradict the Old Testament because the God of the New Testament is the same God as the Old Testament. And if I'm going to put my life on my line, my family on my line, my, my, my well-being on the line, saying I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and I run into an error like this, well, it must mean that there's something wrong, and I'm believing something that isn't true. If the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and the New Testament contradict, well, that's a real problem. It means either both of them are wrong, or one of them is wrong and the other one is right. And the thing that keeps coming up as we discuss this, as we look at Hebrews, we look at Psalms, is this name Melchizedek. What's a Melchizedek? And why does it keep coming up? It only comes up like three times in the Bible. A priest in the order of Melchizedek. Well, to find out what's going on with this guy, Melchizedek, we have to again go back to our timeline, and we have to go back before Moses. We actually go all the way back to Abraham in the time of the beginning of the patriarchs. Because interestingly, Melchizedek shows up there. Abraham's just gone and fought a big battle, and he's on his way home, and he runs into this guy in Genesis 14, starting in 17. It says, then after his return from the defeat of Keterolomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. 
and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a high priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of the spoils of his plunder, which was a sign that he was acknowledging the greatness of Melchizedek, that Melchizedek was higher than himself. Now this is truly bizarre. Why? Because it would be hundreds of years until Moses showed up, until they had the first five books of the Bible. Levi hasn't been born yet. Judah hasn't been born yet. Abraham, as far as he knows, is the only guy on the world who even knows who this God of the Bible is who's told him to wander out into the middle of the desert. What do they know about God? Very little. There's no Bible. There's no sacrificial system. There's no tabernacle. And there are no priests. Yet Abraham runs into this guy who's called the king of Salem. He's called a high priest of God most high. And Abram says, you know God even better than I do. You're, you're above me. So I'm going to recognize that and pay homage to you. It's a bizarre story. It's very odd. Where does it come from? And what is it about? Who is Melchizedek? Well, the author of Hebrews in verse 7 is just looking at what we just looked at and weaving that into our understanding of what's going on here from Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and now what's been written in Hebrews 7. He says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which means king of peace. So this guy Melchizedek, his title is the king of righteousness, the king of peace. And he is a high priest of God Most High at a time where there are no priests. The best guy around, the hero, the most spiritual person that we know of on earth, is Abraham, and Abraham's like, you're the man. And then he disappears, and he doesn't show up again until Psalm 110. He shows up out of nowhere. He has this crazy name. Abraham bows down. So the author of Hebrews goes on in verse seven, verse, or chapter 7, verse 3, and he, he marvels at who this is. This Melchizedek, without father, without mother, without genealogy, you know, all the big names, all the big features and characters of the Bible, we have this, you know, long history of so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. We know who they are. We know where their origins come from. This guy has no father or mother or genealogy that we know of, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed in need of the, um, those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have a commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. Later, the Levitical priests would show up and they receive a tenth from the people, just as Melchizedek has received a tenth 
from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from, from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So it's clear that Melchizedek is not from the line of Levi. Levi hasn't been born. It's clear that Melchizedek gave a blessing to Abraham. Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils to Melchizedek. And so they understand, the audience understands, and by all Hebrew tradition, we understand that Abram is recognizing that he is lesser than Melchizedek. And Melchizedek agrees. So we have a priest, a high priest of God most high. And what is the author's point? The author is simply saying there was a priesthood before Levi. We don't know much about it. We don't know where it came from. We don't know how it was established, but we know it was real. We know that we have written copies of Genesis that go way back before when Christ was born. And Melchizedek is there. And he's not a Levite. He's greater. And he reasons because Levi came from Abraham's line much later because Abraham was less than Melchizedek. And because Melchizedek is a priest, Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. He was first. Melchizedek's priesthood was older and greater than the Levitical priesthood. And Psalm 110 told us what? That the Messiah would be a ruler, a king, the scepter would not depart from him, and that he would be a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. The Messiah is not supposed to be a Levite. There would be a priest king. The Messiah would play both roles. They would be from the line of Judah because God promised David, who was of the line of Judah, that from his descendants would come one who would rule forever. God promised Israel in Psalm 110 that that ruler would be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And so the reasoning here is, is that Jesus is a superior priest from a superior priesthood, and he now plays this role of high priest for all of us, this intermediary between us and God for eternity. That in the old covenant, the high priests were a symbol of what was to come, but in the new covenant, we have a literal intermediary between us and God, and it's Jesus Christ, our sympathetic and loving high priest. And so he begins to expound on this in 7, verse 11. He says, now if perfection was brought through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek? And not be designated according to the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. So he's saying, it was always known that the Levitical priesthood was temporary. <coughs> it changed every year. And the old covenant itself was temporary because God had promised <coughs> a new covenant, a new relationship, a new way of approaching him. And the author is saying, this order of Melchizedek 
was installed by God very early on as a superior priesthood that would reach fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And when you have a new priest, a new priesthood, you have a new covenant, all of a sudden, all the dynamics change. They aren't contradictory, they're complementary. One was something to prepare us for what was next, and now that what was next is here, it finds fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. The old covenant worked through human priests. The new covenant has one priest and one priest only for eternity, and that is Jesus Christ himself. The old was temporary. The new is eternal. And we have a new approach, a new way to come to God. Why don't Christians observe temple sacrifices? Because the temporal sacrifices were a picture to teach us that God himself would come in the person of Jesus Christ and be our sacrifice for us. Jesus is not only the high priest, he's also the sacrifice. Giving himself so that he can take the punishment for our sins upon himself. We go on in Hebrews 7, verse 23. It says, The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they, are not, they, are, they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to also save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Because he is God, he does not die, he does not fail, he does not grow weak, he stays forever in that role, making and proving that our sins have been paid for. You see, we still need an intercessor in the new covenant, similarly to the old covenant, but in the new covenant, it's not a person, it's not a priest, it's not a fallible human being who, gets, who goes between us and God to build a relationship. It's Jesus Christ himself. Isaiah 59, 1, through 12, 1, 1 and 2 say, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Basically, this is saying that God in his righteousness and his goodness cannot be in fellowship with wickedness and evil. Wickedness and evil is you and me. And so because of the sin in our lives, because of the way we treat other people, because of the way we think about ourselves, because of the corruptibility of man, we cannot approach a perfect God who is just because he'll have to destroy us. So God brings an intermediary in. And that intermediary was symbolized in the old covenant by human priests who themselves were fallible but now have been permanently replaced so that no human being is more important, no human being is more valuable, and we rely on no human being to be close to God. We rely only on Jesus Christ. And this, was, this is what found fulfillment in the new covenant. 1 Timothy 2, 3-6 says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior 
who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself up as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Those placeholders of high priests in the Old Covenant have been replaced. And so, what we arrive at is the options that are available to us as human beings. Where do we stand before God? What does God think about? What does God think of us? And how do we connect with Him? And our options, there's really only three or four options that we can take. One would be ignore Him. We are free. That's, it's amazing. Think about this for a second. The all-powerful creator God of the universe who says, let there be light and the universe comes into existence allows us to ignore him if we wish. We can go on acting as we are our own gods. We can live our lives. We can decide what's right and wrong for ourselves. That doesn't mean he will ignore us. But that does mean that we have the ability to ignore him yet are accountable for our actions. We can ignore him. We can try to impress God with our good deeds. We can try to be a really, really good person. The problem is, is that the standard is perfection. The standard is not be good or be better than the person next to you, (coughs) be better than your neighbor, be better than people in prison. The standard is to be perfect because God is perfect. And he cannot allow evil into his presence. So if you want a relationship with God, you have to be cleansed of all evil and wickedness. And good deeds do not cleanse us of evil and wickedness. They're good, but the good things we do don't make up for the bad things we've done. It doesn't work that way. It's a blemish. It's a stain that's permanent. Unless wash clean, he says, by the blood of Jesus Christ. We can go to a human intercessor. We can pretend as though the new covenant never happened and we can go to church and we can look at people that that say that they're spiritual and we can ask them to go to God on our behalf. But the problem is, is those people are just as flawed as we are. Make no mistake. They have the same problems that we have. The fourth option, which is the only option that God has really provided, is to accept Jesus Christ as your intercessor. To turn to him in humility and say, I cannot do this on my own. I cannot be who I need to be. And I recognize that to a lot of us, that sounds like a crutch. That was my take, my take for a long time. You know, I wasn't raised in the church. I wasn't raised going to and hearing spiritual things, to my ears, somebody who had been raised by his father from the earliest days of his life, what I I learned was be independent, be strong, deal with what life throws at you, and roll with the punches and be a man. And to my ears, this, what I'm talking to you about right now, was the biggest crutch I could imagine. 
just let go and let God and, you know, it makes you comfortable to think that there's something in the next life and that this is the easy way out. This is the easy way. This is too easy. I want to work hard. I want to earn something for myself. That was what I was taught to be. And I remember very distinctly, it wasn't the conversation where I came to Christ, but it was the conversation that really got me thinking. I was talking to a believer, somebody who understood this and who understood me. And I was going off about how Christianity was a crutch, it was the easy way, all of these things. And what they said to me was, so you think a crutch is bad? And I'm like, yeah, a crutch is bad. Like, who needs, like, how, how ugly and terrible is it if somebody goes around on a crutch when there's nothing wrong with them? And they said to me, you know, that, that is a gross picture. And I don't think, I think you are understanding it correctly. I think Christianity is a crutch. I think you're right about that. But what you don't know is that your leg is broken. And that, that hit me. And that actually lined up much better for me than a lot of other things that people had said. Because it was my pride that was telling me my leg is not broken. And so a crutch is disgusting to you if you don't think you have a problem. It's loathsome. But what is loathsome about a crutch if you have a broken leg? What's utterly foolish is to walk around on a broken leg without a crutch. And so, you know, this, this view that we tend to have that Christianity and the gospel and Jesus Christ are coming at it from a place of weakness really, I think, exposes that we don't understand how weak we are. We want to earn it, we want to own it, and we want to deserve it. And God says that is the one thing you cannot do. You have to accept it. I think in closing, too, one of the important aspects that I think we really need to bring home from a passage like this is the reliability of Scripture. The importance and the connection and the reality that we are dealing with a being who has existed before man, before the universe, before any creation, who has been at work through human agency to reach out to us and for us to understand who he is. God wants to be known. And when we look at passages like this, we see that Scripture actually is consistent with itself. It's easy to go to a Bible is lit class in college and have a professor point out something like, well, says the Messiah is a priest king, but you can't be from two tribes. But there are great answers to questions like that. Things that seem like they are deadlock contradictory on one hand. God has worked. And in this case, what did God do? He planted a seed in the time of Abraham to answer a question 2,000 years later in the time of Christ. In a perfectly consistent way, using different people over different times and preserving that word so that this question could be asked. Is this possible that this book could be consistent with itself? And so many times, many of us have had the experience. I remember as a young believer desperately trying to get out from under Scripture because there were things in it I didn't like. So all I needed to do was find a really good contradiction and be like, I'm out of here. That's how I became a Bible teacher 
was trying so hard to disprove the Bible. I got my undergraduate in history looking at Roman and Israeli history because I wanted to understand as much as I could so that I could get this Bible away from me. And every time, and there were things, I mean, there were things like this where you just come up and you're like, oh, this is it. The bars are still open, man. This Bible's done, right? And then you just are patient and you do some study and you see God standing there like, no, I thought about that too. (laughs) And then you're left with the reality of what you're looking at. A being with a mind so brilliant who could work over generations through human experience to create a mosaic of an incredible picture, a beautiful picture, tied within free will and human agency over thousands of years of human culture, all coming together to paint one picture. There is a God. He has spoken. He is good and He loves us. But we have a problem that can only be answered in the person of Jesus Christ. That is a kind of evidence that you can't pick up on without some rigor, without some study. Allow yourself to be challenged. If you think you've got the contradiction that proves what's wrong with the Bible, push a little further. Ask some more questions. There are, in my experience, satisfactory answers. Not always the answers that I want, but that answers that are intellectually satisfying to all the contradictions that I've found. And I think that will be your experience too. Let's draw the line there. Let's pray. God, we thank you for showing us our broken legs. We thank you for your mercy and your compassion and for helping us see that we need help. And it is not easy. It's not easy to admit that we're broken. But it is so incredible to know that you know that better than we do and are just as eager to love us and welcome us into your family. We just pray during the season here that as we go home and as we spend time with people that we've hurt, that uh, we've got tense relationships with, or that have hurt us and that we need to forgive, we just pray, God, that we can bring your peace, your glory, your wisdom, and your love into our households and light a path for people to see your greatness and your work in our lives. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.